0: This is Rachel Fields and Nick Dodge with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: The GOP-led state Senate approved their own redistricting plan today. The party line vote to approve GOP-drawn maps similar to those passed a decade ago fell along party line votes. The legislature's other chamber, the state assembly, is slated to vote on the maps later this week, reports the Associated Press. Governor Evers, a Democrat, has already promised to veto the maps, sending redistricting to be settled through the courts. In related news, a stunt involving pizza advocated for fair maps at the state capitol today. Jerry's Partisan Group held a press conference at the state capitol today, handing out pizzas topped with garbage to partisan leaders, a metaphor for the partisan redistricting process. The group has a similar stunt planned for Appleton tomorrow.
0: Today began the second week in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager accused of killing two people and injuring a third in Kenosha during last summer's protests against police brutality. Today, a jury heard testimony from the lone survivor of the three people shot by Rittenhouse as Gage Grosskrauts took the stand. Kraus testified today that he thought he was going to die, and that he thought Rittenhouse was an active shooter. He also testified that he unintentionally pointed his own gun toward Rittenhouse when he was shot. Prosecutors argue that Rittenhouse was an instigator, while his defense says he was acting in self-defense. On Friday, two car lot owners in Kenosha denied that they had ever made arrangements for Rittenhouse to protect their property during unrest in Kenosha following the shooting of Jacob Blake. Rittenhouse faces charges of intentional, reckless, and attempted homicide for which, if convicted, he could spend life in prison. He also faces a curfew violation charge, as well as a possession of a firearm as a minor, which is a misdemeanor.
1: Governor Ever signed 10 bills into law last Friday. The bills, now laws, regulate everything from how to handle mail containing sensitive information to recruitment standards for in regulation of jail and detention officers. Several bills focus on education in the state. One bill requires the State Department of Instruction to create a web portal in the next few years that will display financial data from all school districts and independent charter schools. Evers also vetoed a bill that would have mandated screening assessments for children in kindergarten through second grade and mandated individualized reading plans for students identified as at-risk. In his veto message, Evers wrote that he objected to fundamentally overhauling the state's approach to literacy, instruction, and intervention without more evidence that it was effective and that it would not strain school resources.
0: And in more legislative news, a Dane County judge has ordered Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to release records related to an election probe into the 2020 presidential election. In a ruling on Friday, The Dane County judge said Voss had 10 days to release records related to the election probe. Speaker Voss had argued that he was the wrong person to release the records, saying that they are held by a special office in charge of the probe, headed up by former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman. But Voss may appeal the decision to a higher court. The lawsuits to release the records are brought by the national liberal group, American Oversight. And now, on to today's top stories.
1: UW-Madison hosted a flag-raising ceremony for the Ho-Chunk Nation on Friday. The event was aimed at spreading awareness of the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation that is now occupied by UW-Madison, as well as awareness of the other First Nations in Wisconsin. WORT reporter Ben Kern has more on this story.
2: Onlookers could see the green and blue patterns of the Ho-Chunk flag waving on top of Bascom Hall last Friday. This was part of a flag-raising ceremony designed to move from ignorance to awareness regarding Wisconsin's indigenous history. Flying concurrently with the state flag and U.S. flag for the rest of the day, It was the first time in UW-Madison's history that the flag of another nation was flown on the campus hill. The effort is led by Aaron Birdbear, Tribal Relations Director at UW-Madison, a recent role implemented in 2019. He stresses the importance of acknowledging Ho-Chunk history within the campus grounds.
3: This place is so significant as a cultural center for so many thousands of years and uh, we're just really special uh, to learn and grow from the transformative power of the abundance and energy of this space.
2: The Ho-Chunk lived in this area for about 12,000 years. A treaty signed in 1832, nearly 200 years ago, forced the tribe to give up territory that became the UW-Madison campus. The Ho-Chunk Nation more Moreland in 1837 faced with the government's threat to withhold payments. In 2019, UW-Madison dedicated a plaque on Bascom Hill to recognize the campus as the ancestral home of the Ho-Chunk Nation. Titled, Our Shared Future, the plaque acknowledges that the university occupies ancestral land, a place the Ho-Chunk Nation has called "de since time immemorial. Speaking at the flag-raising ceremony, Chancellor Rebecca Blank emphasized that this work is long overdue.
4: For many years, UW-Madison was not mindful of its history, and we paid little attention to our relationship with the descendants of those who were here long before us. But we are working to change that. A little over two years ago, we gathered over there on Bascom Hill to dedicate a heritage marker that recognizes this land as the ancestral home of the ho Chunk people, recognizes forcible attempts to remove them, and honors their history of resilience and of resistance.
2: Members and dignitaries of the Ho-Chunk Nation participated in the ceremony, including Traditional Chief Clayton Winacek, Vice President Karina Thundercloud, the Wisconsin Dells Singers, and members of Sanford White Eagle Legion Post 556 Color Guard. Vice President Karina Thundercloud urged that understanding history is a joint effort.
4: This occasion you are witnessing today is not only an acknowledgement of all that is history, but a testimony that our community is intertwined. This flag will enhance the conversation as Chancellor Blank has said while dedicating the heritage marker in 2019. That moves us from ignorance to awareness and is the greater indication of that international effort to teach our shared history.
2: More information and resources about our shared future is available online at oursharedfuture.wisc.edu. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ben Kern.
0: Changing fall leaves and crisp weather aren't the only things that come with fall. For the city of Madison, another important milestone this week, hashing out the city's final budget. Among the tweaks that go along with the process, there's a potential roadblock to bus rapid transit. News Director Shally Pittman has the story.
5: Madison Alders have more than two dozen proposed changes to the mayor's capital and operating budget proposals. Budget proposals that are slated to be finalized this week. Those proposed amendments by Alders released on Friday include a slate of requests additional requests for funding to the city's mental health first responders program, the backbone for a 311 system, loans to facilitate small backyard dwellings, and even funding for a mobile neighborhood center for the north side. And one amendment to the city's proposed capital budget could add a hiccup to the future of bus rapid transit in Madison. Five Madison Alders are proposing an amendment to halt funds for Bus Rapid Transit, or BRT, until the city's council can sign off on all routes and modifications for a related project to modify the city's bus routes. That project is called Metro Redesign. The proposed amendment requires council approve all bus routes before funds for BRT are released. It would suspend project work and only pay for design of those routes after the scope of those routes is approved by the council. And it would ask city staff to prepare alternatives to bus routes on State Street. Council President Sayed Abbas is one of five alders proposing the amendment. He says while he supports BRT, his coalition of alders is concerned about oversight and transparency over both Metro Transit and BRT. And he wants to make sure the council and the public are fully involved in planning the new bus routes.
4: I am a big supporter of BRT asking for accountability or clarification does not mean I want to kill the project or stop this project.
5: But Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway scorned the amendment in a press release on Friday, saying the amendment conflates metro redesign
6: with BRT. If what they're looking for is that assurance, um, that's already going to happen, and so the amendment isn't necessary. If they're looking for design alternatives on the bus rapid transit project, we've been through that conversation already. Those design alternatives exist. The council's voted twice on it. Staff are following the council's direction at this point. And to make staff stop work and not be able to spend any money on the project means that they couldn't actually produce any further design for the council to vote on.
5: Alder Abbas pushes back on that, saying that Metro Redesign and BRT are related.
4: With the BRT routes and also non BRT routes, uh, they are the reason they are correlated because BRT routes are going to run on non BRT2, and non BRT buses have to be removed. So, BRT buses, because we do not have additional funding, we're using the existing routes uh, there, that it, it have a coverage. But in case of network redesign, few, some district, at least where the BRT is connected, those buses are being removed and those information has not been shared with the public at a larger level.
5: The mayor says the amendment could delay BRT by at least one year, risking federal funds. And each year of delay could come with an increased price tag due to inflation to the tune of $5 million per year. She told WORT today she's not quite sure why the amendment was
6: introduced. You know, I just think that the amendment is really unnecessary. And the impact of this amendment would be to unnecessarily either stop or delay a project that Madison has been waiting for for 30 years.
5: During the open budget process, the amendment only needs 11 alder votes to pass. Currently, five alders, that's Carter, Harrington McKenney, Miyadze, Revere, and Council President Abbas are sponsoring the amendment. The Madison Common Council will begin deciding the final capital and operating budgets tomorrow, with potential meetings on Wednesday and
0: Thursday nights if needed. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Shali Pittman. Wheel taxes. They're the annual registration fee you pay when you own a vehicle. A new report from the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum finds that across the state, those wheel taxes have been going up by the double digits. For more, News Director Shally Pittman hopped on the phone with Jason Stein, who authored that report.
5: If you live in the city of Madison and you own a car, you paid $85 to the state, $40 to the city, and $28 to Dane County. That's an annual total of $153 in annual wheel taxes. Other communities have similar annual taxes, which help fund transportation budgets for each unit of government. Now, the Wisconsin Policy Forum has a new report that finds that wheel taxes rose by just over 12% last year the seventh year in a row with a double-digit increase. Jason Stein has that and many more findings for those who like to track government finance in a report called Locals Give Wheel Taxes the Gas. Jason, thanks for hopping on.
4: Thank you. Glad to be here.
5: So 10 years ago, local wheel tax revenue was about $7.5 million. Only four communities had a local wheel tax. And now, in 2021, we find ourselves collecting $62.8 Million dollars in almost four dozen communities collecting wheel taxes. You have a handy dandy graph showing this increase in local wheel tax revenue. And if you look at the graph, which you can find at wispolicyforum.org, it stays pretty flat until maybe mm, 2016. And then you just mm-hmm. kind of see it spike. It's a double digit increase each year. So, what's going on here?
4: You know, I think the main thing is that in Wisconsin, starting 2012, we had really tight limits on local property tax increases. And so you need to have new construction in a community to be able to increase the local property tax levy. And in many communities around the state, there really is not a lot of development happening. And when you look at the other options for revenue, like state aid is, is the other big one, that is also not not increasing to any great degree. And so as local governments have just growth in their costs due to inflation, they're looking around for, well, what revenues could we have under our authority that we might increase to help us along with spending cuts with this problem? And, you know, the local vehicle fees are one of the few things that they can raise at their discretion. So you're seeing more and more communities turn to that, including, you know, Dane County and the city of Madison just in recent years.
5: Yeah. So let's talk about the city of Madison, which bumped its wheel tax up last year to $40. I believe that's the highest local wheel tax in the state. Am I right about that? That's correct. So that wheel tax was pushed by our mayor, Satya Rhodes Conway, uh, to go directly to fund the bus system to help fund the future of bus rapid transit and also free up money elsewhere in the budget that was less restricted because it could go to the bus rapid transit and the bus system. Other programs and services could be um, could be better funded. That was Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway's argument. She said that it wasn't something that she wanted to do, but her hands were tied because of these limits on increasing property taxes. Do you see similar arguments from other communities that have uh, raised or or implemented wheel taxes?
4: Yes, I I think that's right. I mean, a dollar of these vehicle fees can offset a dollar of property taxes, and then you could spill that dollar of property taxes on uh, police or firefighters or parks or libraries. Um, and it just varies, you know, what's being used for a lot of communities don't have the kind of transit operation that that Madison does. So in other communities, you know, it may be, you know, it's going to be typically used for for streets, you know, if they but, you know, the, the principle is the same.
5: Okay. So let's talk about what that money that is raised through a wheel tax goes to. What does it fund? Because we're talking about the municipal government, if if it exi- if it there's a wheel tax there. We're talking about a possible county wheel tax and a state wheel tax. Right. So, you know,
4: it's got to be used under state law for transportation purposes. And so, you know, the city of Madison has extended that to transit. You know, again, some other communities have transit. You know, a lot of communities do not the city of Milwaukee has street costs in terms of for its transportation unlike the city of Madison doesn't have a transit uh, that's done by Milwaukee County and so you know Milwaukee County would have that option of potentially of putting money into transit whereas the city of Milwaukee would be be looking at things like like streets and again this would be like in a family budget if i gave you a certain amount of money for your automobile payment or for gas or or another transportation cost and you could only use it for that, that would still help your budget to buy groceries and other things, right? Because you'd have, you'd be spending less money of what you were making previously on your car. You'd have more available for whatever else was in your budget. So that's, that's how it works.
5: So one kind of unusual thing about the wheel tax is that in Wisconsin it's a flat fee and 24 other states also have a flat fee and one could argue that that disproportionately impacts lower income individuals You actually say the opposite. Maybe it doesn't because maybe lower income individuals don't have cars but nonetheless, right, it's not a progressive mm-hmm. tax. Are there alternatives that are f- focused on more progressive taxation or are there different things that we could generate the same revenue from in a different way? Sure. So in other states,
4: there are more, I guess, progressive approaches to this. So if you look at our neighboring states, uh, Iowa, Minnesota, Michigan, all base their wheel taxes on a vehicle's value and age, and in Iowa also its weight. And so that means that, you know, someone with a new car, more expensive car is going to pay more than someone who has a very, you know, old and inexpensive vehicle. And that helps lessen the impact of it on, say, you know, a low wage worker who maybe lives in the city, works in the suburbs and where there's no bus service and, and needs a car to, to get to employment.
5: Would there be barriers in Wisconsin to implementing that more progressive taxation based on the car and its weight or its starting value or its age? Would the state legislature need to do anything about that?
4: Right. So there would be no barriers for the state legislature to do that. Um, it would just be a matter of coming up with a proposal to do that. And there would be a number of other states that we could look to for guidance in how to how to set up a regime like that. There is there is a large obstacle to a local government doing it, and that is it's it's not allowed under state law right now. So, you know, if you're this if you're the, the legislature, they could certainly put in place a system like that if just given a little bit of time. Um, the city of Madison, Dane County, they're not at liberty to use that approach. They have to institute a flat fee for all vehicles. That's the only option available. So there is a little bit of progressivity in the wheel tax in that, you know, if you don't own a car, um, or if you own, you know, several cars, because you're wealthy, you're going to pay less or more. But, you know, it's it's limited, because again, you know, most people, most, most households have a car to And they're going to end up paying the same for that, whether it's uh, a very nice car or (laughs) the opposite.
5: So one, we're almost out of time, but one interesting detail in your report, and it's mentioned in a paragraph or two, but you you touch on the idea of a transportation utility that would treat uh, local roads, when we're talking about funding roads, as a utility, and it would charge property owners a fee. This kind of harkens back to the levy limit discussion, right? Outagami County tried to do this, and apparently, I didn't know this, it's being held up in court by a lawsuit from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, who argue that it's a circumvention of the levy limit, essentially, right?
4: Right. It's the town of Buchanan out of County. This this idea of a transportation utility, I think it's unfamiliar to, to most of us in Wisconsin, but it has been used in a number of states, uh, like Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, and, and some others. And it, it essentially involves assessing or estimating the amount of traffic that a particular uh, property generates whether it's a grocery store or a, a someone's home and then attaching you know or imposing a variable fee based on that level of traffic on the property it's unclear whether that is allowed under Wisconsin law i mean obviously the the Wisconsin League of Municipalities maintains that it is and you know we'll see again there was a property taxpayers' group that uh, brought uh, a lawsuit against the town of Buchanan. And as you say, they're represented by the Wisconsin Institute on Law and Liberty. And, and that's winding its way through the courts.
5: So one last question as we close out the interview, and I, I know that you're nonpartisan, but I'd be curious to get your take. Battles over road funding tend to be partisan and flare up around election season. It was a partisan issue in 2018 in the gubernatorial race between Scott Walker and Tony Evers. Um, I found an article trying to harken back now three years uh, and refresh my memory. I found an article where uh, it was an interview with Charles Franklin or he was quoted in it. um, Charles Franklin, the director of the Marquette Law School poll. And he said, quote, we find a demand for better highways and at exactly the same time a reluctance to pay for it. Now, you're an ex-Capital reporter. Do you see any wheel tax issues or transportation funding issues broadly being a prominent platform issue in the 2022 election? I mean, it's a great
4: it's a great question. Uh, the gas tax, uh, which is another way of paying for roads, has been has been fairly unpopular. Um, Republicans, at least, have been very unwilling to raise that uh, toll roads, which you see in some other states like Illinois, are, are not particularly popular, I think. Um, by and large. So, you know, property taxes, people are also concerned about, you know, the level of property taxes that they pay in the state. So, you know, it gets down to no one is really, there's no um, revenue source for paying for repairs and maintenance of local roads that anyone uh, really embraces enthusiastically, I think. Um, You know, (laughs) everyone would like to have services, but you know the paying for the services is less pleasant than getting them, so I think it's an open question how the state um, approaches that. I think you know the the flip side of it is that you know people we, we also in many in many communities um, the roads are aging and you know need work and you know they also they need to be plowed and and so on and so forth and that that can be. Um, It certainly affects commerce and it can even be a safety issue at times. So, you know, I think this is something that you're going to see continue to be a pretty prominent issue, maybe not the most prominent, but something that you're going to continue to hear about, I think, in the coming years, including the election.
5: All right. Well, I'm going to invest in horses because maybe we'll just have to do that. Um, But Jason Stein, it's been lovely to speak with you.
4: Thanks so much. Good Thanks. luck with
5: the horses. I've been speaking with Jason Stein, researcher at the Wisconsin Policy Forum. He's author of a new report analyzing the recent surge in Wisconsin wheel taxes titled Locals Give Wheel Taxes the Gas. You can read it and all of their work online at wispolicyforum.org.
1: The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us.
0: The Hormel sit-down strike of 1933 had lasting repercussions for workers. On today's edition of The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson recalls successful strike that benefited workers well into the 80s. For
1: Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez,
3: who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who brave and long Standing strong.
7: This Thursday, November 11th, marks the beginning of the successful sit in at Hormel Meatpacking Plant in Austin, Minnesota in 1933. It was one of the earliest sit ins of the period. Hormel was the largest employer in town. Out of 17,000 residents, 2,700 worked at Hormel. At Hormel, there was no seniority, grievance procedure, or overtime pay. The foreman did the hiring and firing, setting the conditions of work and acting as harsh taskmasters. Raises and promotions went to foreman's friends. One of the foremen was Frank Ellis. Company managers had not realized Ellis was a labor radical when they hired him and promoted him to foreman. Ellis had participated in the 1904 nationwide packing house strike, helped organize the Amalgamated Meat Cutters and Butcher Workmen's Union, and had been an organizer for the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW. Ellis was talented, charismatic, conscientious, and not afraid to endure jail and violence. For several years already, Ellis had been hiring former union men into Hormel. that were potential organizers throughout the plant. By 1933, the workers were prepared, and the spark came when management proposed a new insurance program that would cost workers 20 cents a week. A foreman ordered three workers to sign up one day in July of 1933, but only one complied but that sparked a protest by many workers in a strategic area of the plant, shutting down the hog kill floor. Confused and angered, the foreman gave the worker back his card. So after ten minutes, the hog kill resumed, and plant production continued. Word of this disobedience spread like wildfire throughout the plant. Workers called a mass meeting that night in a local park, and the enthusiasm was not dampened even though workers noticed hidden foremen writing down the leaders' names. Frank Ellis called for a union of all workers in Austin, not just at Hormel. That night, 600 workers signed up for the union, paying $1 initiation fee. The next day, company president, Jay Hormel, called the union leaders, including Ellis, into his office and said he was pleased that they had formed a union. Unconvinced, union leaders continued organizing the town. At a meeting on September 22, union members called a strike for seniority rights to begin the next day. But the company summoned union leaders to an emergency 1 a.m. meeting with 150 local business leaders. And by 8:45 a.m., there was an agreement for union recognition, seniority, and grievance arbitration. Two weeks later, the union issued demands around work increases. Two weeks later, the union issued demands around wage increases, including equal pay for women but the company refused. On November 10th, the union authorized another strike, overwhelmingly to put pressure on Hormel, but a handful of workers misunderstood the intent and called workers out of the plant. Workers were soon picketing and union leadership decided they had to call a strike. By the next morning, November 11th at 11 a.m., picketers learned that non-union workers were still working inside. After he had 400 men and women, many armed with clubs, sticks, and rocks, crashed through the plant entrance, shattering the glass doors and sweeping the plant's guards before them. They chased out non-union workers, including President J. Hormel and company officials. After an hour, peace was restored and workers held the factory. Hormel was afraid workers would damage their refrigeration system worth $500,000, with one million pounds of meat inside. Austin's mayor met secretly with Governor Olson, a pro-labor member of the Farm Labor Party. The governor called Hormel and agreed to send a special investigator to Austin to resolve the strike. But secretly, the governor also mobilized 300 National Guardsmen nearby. After the state's special investigator could not move the company, the governor himself came to town, brokering a deal where Hormel Management would accept the ruling of the State Industrial Commission on all disputed issues. Frank Ellis spoke against the deal, telling his members that union leadership was not afraid to go to the penitentiary in your behalf. But the rank and file voted overwhelmingly to approve the deal and return to work the next morning. Although Hormel was only forced to give minor raises, the workers considered it a great victory. The strikes had changed Hormel's behavior toward his workers, ushering in an era of corporate welfare capitalism that benefited generations of Hormel workers until the 1985 P-9 strike. But that is a story for another day. For WRT's The Past is the Past, I'm Harry Richardson.
1: It's now 6.39 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: Madison's trademark lakes have suffered in recent years. The main culprit is phosphorus, a nutrient that runs into the lakes and promotes algae growth. Back in 2012, a public-private partnership called the Clean Lakes Alliance set an ambitious goal to fix this problem, reduce the amount of phosphorus in Lake Mendota and Monona by 50%. Here we are almost 10 years into the program, and this morning, 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing took a look into the program with Paul Dearlove, Deputy Director of the Clean Lakes Alliance.
3: So tell us a little bit about the Clean Lakes Alliance. How did it come about and how is the project funded?
8: Well, Clean Lakes Alliance isn't uh, a very old organization. We were founded in 2010 and it was uh, put together as an organization with the recognition that we have these beautiful resources, these, these gems, um, watery gems throughout the Mad- greater Madison area that needed protecting. And uh, despite years and years of effort and cleaning those uh, those lakes up, um, they still continue to have problems. So Clean Lakes Alliance is a nonprofit organization that felt the lake should be the, the center of the community and should be treated as the center of the community.
3: So let's turn to the sort of state of the Yoharo chain of lakes. Um, about 70 to 80% of the land area of the Lake Mendota watershed is agricultural cropland. 10 or 15 years ago, uh, researchers were estimating that the amount of phosphorus coming into Lake Mendota from both agricultural and urban sources was about equal. Is that still the case?
8: Yeah, you know, we do have, it's, it's a very good point. We do have um, uh, an interesting watershed. It's it's uh, predominantly agricultural. A lot of us city dwellers would imagine that the watershed or the, the land area that drains surface water to the lakes is mostly urban, you know, because that's that's where most of our focus is. We're in neighborhoods, we're, you know, around the downtown area, um, so we see the watershed as this sort of built-up environment, but it's actually mostly agriculture, and especially north of uh, Lake Mendota, which is considered our headwaters, that's where uh, most of the land area that's drained to the lakes is is north of of Lake Mendota, and that's primarily rural and agricultural.
3: But in terms of the amount of phosphorus that's actually coming off of that land, have we seen changes in that? I mean, we've been working. Uh, is there a difference between the amount of phosphorus coming off the agricultural part of the, the watershed versus the urban part of the watershed that has changed in recent years?
8: Yeah, there there, there has been, actually. Um, and it's a good point. And I'm, I'm glad you're, you're bringing up the topic of phosphorus. Um, some have already heard this already, but it only takes about one pound of phosphorus to generate 500-plus pounds of wet algae growth. So it's it's got a huge multiplier effect. You just have a little bit of phosphorus, which is contained in soil, leaves, um, fertilizer, organic matter. Manoir. You get a little bit of phosphorus in the water, and it causes an explosion of green <laughs> in terms of, of algae blooms. But, yes, we have been seeing um, – actually, we've uh, modeled – a, a very positive impact in terms of agricultural practices that are being put on the landscape. So when I talk about agricultural practices, the, 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 those would be things like uh, changing tillage practices so the soil isn't as disturbed as it would be if you turn up the soil before, before planting, and it's putting in uh, vegetated buffers along stream corridors or ditches uh, that would sort of infiltrate water and capture sediment and phosphorus before it enters the stream corridor or it's cover crops. So when the crop comes off the field, the the, the field can be planted to a, a temporary uh, cover of vegetation that acts like a protective blanket on that, that soil, um, uh, and prevents soil from getting in, into the, into the water. Um, but these practices, they're, they have been, uh, uh, they're becoming more popular and more widely adopted. And we've modeled, um, the, uh, very positive impact so if if climate change wasn't happening and we weren't seeing all these sort of really heavy rainfall events uh we would have actually seen an improvement in the amount of phosphorus or a reduction in the amount of phosphorus coming in from those agricultural areas as a result of those practices well
3: that brings up, unfortunately
8: it's just the runoff is that there's we've getting too much rain so it's overwhelming those impacts
3: well that brings up a really good point i mean we're we're We've been investing lots in both the agricultural and the urban sectors and trying to reduce uh, runoff. But all of that has been washed out because of these huge rainfall events. I mean, the, the prime example is the rainfall we had back in 2018. But even the smaller storms have gotten larger, more intense and more runoff. Are we just spinning our wheels here?
8: You know, it, it, it's easy to lose hope, right? You know, you, you think, well, geez, what, we're, we're investing all these dollars, we're, we're um, you know, putting in all these practices, and we're not seeing a change, change in water quality. So now I just challenge you to think about what, what would happen if we weren't put, putting in those practices and we weren't taking those actions. These lakes would be probably cesspools, you know, they would be probably unusable. Uh, but algae blooms probably every day in, in the summer. But these these actions are making a difference. And I think the lesson here is we just need to double down on what's working. And we need to do more of, of these actions to account for the, the wetter environment and these sort of gully washer uh, rainstorms that we're seeing. And, and even warmer winters where we're having rainfall in February, that's, that's uh um, delivering a lot of uh, contamination and pollution to the lakes during that, a time period when it usually didn't happen because it was snow-covered and you didn't get rainfall in February.
3: Now, you mentioned uh, soil erosion in rural areas as a, as a prime source of phosphorus uh, into the lakes, but a very large percentage of farmland in Dane County is used just to manage manure. What improvements are we making in handling cow poop?
8: Yeah, well, um, manure is, is, you know, when used properly, it's a it's a great resource, right? Um, unfortunately, when too much is generated and you, and you don't have a place to put it or, or a place to treat it, uh, then it becomes a pollutant. So we're, what we're trying to do through this compact effort um, is is we're trying to, in this new planning effort, is we're trying to, uh, trying to find ways where we can really utilize that manure as a resource. Um, it, w- one way that's been done in the past, and we'd like to see this continue, is we have two anaerobic manure digesters in our watershed where uh, farmers that have um, livestock operations in the vicinity of those, those digesters send their manure to, to, to that facility and it gets processed and treated in a way where the manure is easier to handle. You can bring it to fields that are more phosphorus deficient, Um, and it's just a a better way of of timing the, the application of manure so it doesn't become a water quality problem. So we'd like to actually see more of those digesters uh, in the watershed whether they're a regional type of facility or on-site farm digesters for, uh, for farms that have livestock operations
3: now anaerobic manure digesters sound like a fairly expensive infrastructure heavy solution and we've seen in some cases that they can be subject to failure somewhat catastrophically uh, in in recent, um, in some recent history, where we had one that actually uh, uh, collapsed or exploded, I believe, and sent uh, huge amounts of manure um, untreated out. Um, are the, there been much talk about something uh, simpler, perhaps like reducing the number of dairy cows on the landscape?
8: Yeah, you know, w- one thing that we, we've been doing as an organization and what would be recommended in, the, in the, this uh, updated plan it's just more composting of manure. You know, like in, in our urban areas, uh, you know, those who um, are concerned about leaves in the street, for instance, which is a, a large source of urban phosphorus pollution to the lakes, uh, those people who want to get those leaves out of the street gutter, they compost uh, the leaves. You know, they, they, they you need a place to put them, so either those city crews are going to come by and pick them up, or you got to drop them off at a composting facility, or you got to compost them on your own property so we encourage composting of leaves in urban areas and we encourage composting of manure in our rural areas so if, if, if manure can be composted on the farm uh, again it then becomes lighter easier to, to move around um, and and then you could apply it to the to the fields and places where it's most needed and you can avoid the high risk areas like locations that Drain directly to surface waters.
3: And is composting different than land spreading, which is the common way of disposing of manure now?
8: Yeah, land, land spreading is is uh, usually it's the raw manure, so it's it's a lot of liquid. Um, it saturates the soil. Um, it, it's it's uh, very high high in phosphorus. It's uh, you know it's it's in it's raw form. Um, composting really gets out the, the the liquid component of, of the material. Um, it, it, uh, heat, the piles heat up um, and, and when composting happens it heats up and it kills off pathogens and reduces smells and, and so forth. So kind of it just makes it an easier uh, a resource to handle
3: but what about source reduction I mean we've got a lot of cows out on the landscape do we are we exceeding the carrying capacity of the land should we be talking about reducing the dairy herd
8: yeah that's a it's a great question and and source control is going to be our number one focus you know we're trying to look at how do we reduce the material that's on the landscape to begin with right so it's not there uh, to get into the water uh, then sort of the next step is okay once it's once it's on the landscape, whether it's manure or leaves or whatever it is, how do we contain it so it doesn't, you know, runoff doesn't carry it in, in, into the lakes? And then the sort of the last thing we look at is just how do we control the phosphorus once it's in the water? And that's usually the most, the most expensive route to take is is, uh, is that. Um, with the in these rural areas and in, in, in the farm community. Uh, we're really promoting the completion of nutrient management plans. So, uh, statutorily, Wisconsin requires that every farm uh, have a uh, nutrient management plan, which is essentially an accounting system of of what you're putting on the land to, to grow your crops. It's a it's it's sort of understanding uh, what's put on on the on the soil, uh, how much the crops are taking out of the soil. Um, and what you want to do is you want to have a balanced account, right? Or you want to have a reduction in phosphorus uh, as, as a result of that, th- those operational changes that come out of understanding uh, uh, the nutrient management process and, and, and plan. So we're, the, the, And that is a requirement, but it's also a requirement that, that comes with the, the requirement that, the, that uh, you have to offer, the government has to offer a 70% cost share uh, to, to fund those, those nutrient management plans. So there's a cost associated with it, too. Um, but we, we are, are really advocating that every farm in the watershed has and follows a nutrient management plan, and that's a great way to get at source control.
3: All right. We've been speaking with Paul Dearlove of the Clean Lake Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz on today's
1: movie review feature contributor harry richardson reviews two new movies one is an ultra-violent western with a largely african-american cast the other a very wes anderson quirky movie
7: man old devil this is gonna be buck's last day amongst the living what exactly he do to you call it a professional robbery i
3: know who you are That love how hunts down those who trespass against him with no mercy?
7: That was lit from the trailer for The Harder They Fall, a hyper-violent western co-written and directed by Jimush Samuel. Boaz Yakin is the other screenwriter. This is a beautifully filmed movie with a great cast that contains too much violence but has charismatic characters. This is a revenge western with a twist a mostly African-American cast and several more African-Americans behind the camera. The story's pretty standard with few surprises. The only real surprise is told right away. These people existed. That's on the title card with a period after each word. So we have this story that uses real people's names, but doesn't really tell us much about them or why should we should care about them. The opening starts with a cold-blooded scene, a gunslinger, Rufus Buck, one of those real people, played by Idris Elba. Buck interrupts a family dinner, shoots the woman and a preacher in front of their ten-year-old son. Buck carves a cross on the child's forehead, so he'll know him when he comes to get him. Sure enough, the young boy in good time grows up. Nat Love, played by Jonathan Majors, has formed a gang of his own. He robs the robbers, but his real goal is to revenge. But his real goal is to get revenge on Buck, Several of Love's gang have real people's names, like Quick Draw Specialist Jim Beckworth, played by R. C. Siler, and stagecoach Mary Field, a unique saloon keeper and pioneering figure in the US Postal Service, Zazie Beats, Love's ex. On Buckside is Cherokee Bill, another real person. His sharpshooter, Lakeith Stanfield, is a philosophical killer. His main aide is a ruthless killer. Well, they're all ruthless killers, Trudy Smith, Regina King. In a supporting role, there's Delroy Lindau as a gruff, compromised U.S. Marshal, and Danielle Deadweiler as Mary's unlikely small-sized bouncer. She steals a lot of scenes, including one where she robs a bank in a very white town. All in all, though, not a very satisfying story, but it does serve to remind people that Westerns have been too white. Historians verify that perhaps a third of the cowboys were black including possibly the Roan Ranger, but that would be another and more interesting story. Sadly, this is a waste of fine talents and a big budget. I can't really recommend this movie, it just started showing on Netflix. Now for something of a decidedly quirky note.
4: It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer, Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human
1: interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this
3: time? No, I don't. For decent people. It's supposed to be charming.
7: That was a clip from the trailer for this French Dispatch written and directed by Wes Anderson. He's also one of the producers. The movie is about a group of quirky writers who work for the fictional French dispatch in the fictional French town of Ennui-sur-Blazé. It was really filmed in Agulema. The film seems to be vaguely set in the early 60s. The dispatch itself is based on The New Yorker with a twist. There are mostly twists here. It started out as a Sunday supplement to the Liberty, Kansas Evening stun bringing the world back to kansas the editor-in-chief is bro murray's arthur howitzer jr murray is at his deadpan best his mottos are no crying and just try to make it sound like he wrote it that way on purpose howitzer pampers his writers and the bulk of the movie is four writers narrating their stories with editors notes the Cycling Reporter, by Herb St. Cesare, Owen Wilson, features stories, Concrete Masterpiece, by J.K.L. Burinson, Tilda Swinton, Revision to a Manifesto, by Lucinda Krewitz, Francis McDormand, and The Private Dining Room of the Police Commissioner, Jeffrey Wright, plus Decline and Deaths, as an end note. The film has been described as a love letter to France and to print journalism, but it's also highly stylized, slow-paced, melancholy, absurd film. In other words, it's very Wes Anderson. If you've enjoyed his other films, you'll probably like this one. This isn't my favorite Wes Anderson film, though. That would probably be The Grand Budapest Hotel. Maybe you should check out a couple of his other films first. This one just started playing in theaters, but doesn't really need to be seen on a big screen. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern. Special thanks to feature contributor Harry Richardson, as well as 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, and news director Sholly Pittman reported and produced today's show. I'm your host, Rachel Fields.
1: And I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.
5: W O R T Madison.